Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, everyone, and a warm welcome to Nigel Travis. I'm delighted to have you here today, Nigel. Delighted to be with you, Ian. Now, you've had a stellar career. I'll give a brief introduction before we jump in. You started in HR, which for some CEOs and chairmen of big organisations might be a strange place to start, but I'm sure that affected the way you've developed different passions and different views on leadership along the way. You then moved through HR into Grand Metropolitan, into Burger King, where you become MD of Europe and, and the Middle East. You then went into Blockbuster, and I'm sure our listeners will be very keen to hear about what happened there, especially the disruption by Netflix. And a lot of people know what happened from the outside in, but it'd be interested to get your perspective on that. And then going on to Papa John's for four years, where online sales tripled. And then to the Dunkin' Brands, where you spent 12 years as chairman and CEO. And then, of course, added that into the mix. In 2017, you're part of a consortium that rescued your passion that you followed from a, a young boy, Lake Norwich Football Club, which would be, again, really interesting to see how that came about. And it doesn't stop. You're on the board of several large American organizations like Abercrombie & Fitch and Advanced Auto Parts and Office Depot. And you're author of The Challenge Culture, which uh, seems to bring together a lot of your thinking around leadership and running a business. So I'd like to start there, Nigel, if I can, and tell me, where did The Challenge Culture come from? How was it honed through your career and what is it? You're absolutely right. It was uh, an evolving piece of thought. And I, I, and I think thought is the right way of positioning it. Um, it started really when I worked at Grand Metropolitan in the late 80s. And we had a, a chairman who was terrific, very engaging man, ex-motor industry. I was running management development for Grand Met, which was, for those who are new to it, a conglomerate based in London, but with a lot of American companies. In many ways, it was an American company, but it had brands that didn't really fit together. And Alan was in the middle of Operation Declutter. We had mm -hmm. everything from Pearl Vision optical chain to betting, casinos, drink, food, dog food, you name it. We were writing the company's organizational philosophy and Alan liked to sort of challenge people. I said, well, that's it. Let's call it the challenge culture. Yeah. And that's where it evolved from. It was part of the Grand Met organizational philosophy. And then in my career, I moved from HR after 20 odd years into general management. And as I moved up um, the levels in, a, in general management, I gradually evolved the challenge culture to become my own culture. Mm. Mm, yeah, I can see that. And there's a real passion that runs through the book. You say the best organizations run on pushback. Um, and, and this is what you mean, or this is what underpins maybe the challenge culture. And that, as I understand it, Nigel, that's pushback from all sides. That's very open to everyone being able to push back. Is that, well, tell me what you mean by pushback and how that works in a culture. Well, I think a, a word, I did, a phrase I didn't use in the book, because the book came out in 2018, but I've kind of evolved my thinking yet more, is an organisation that effectively takes hierarchy out. Mm -hmm. I mean, let me take Leighton Orient, which is a very simple organisation compared with many I've been involved in. I'm the chairman. We have a great board, fantastic board who challenged me and everyone. 
but everyone's involved in it. We do employee meetings and the players are encouraged to challenge. Everything's first name terms. Uh-huh. And, and everything is up for challenge and improvement. Now, it's not a coercive culture. And one of the things that I really want to point out to your listeners, Ian, is it, you don't have to develop a challenge culture. It's having a positive culture that is the most important message that I want to get over. Uh-huh. Um, the challenge culture is, is where you challenge things, not necessarily every day, not every hour, but you try and challenge for improvement. And if someone's several levels down the organization, they should be free to challenge as well as someone who reports to you or even your boss. Mm-hmm. And I always talk when I do speeches on this, that you're in the middle of an organization, you should be challenging upwards, sideways, and most particularly down on your employees. But it should be done in a fun, engaging, constructive way. And, and I think an example is if I write an article, just take another simple example. If I write a program article for our Lake Orient program, I don't just write it. I send it to two or three people and say, hey, guys, what do you think about it? Mm-hmm. That is challenge in its most simple way. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be up for being challenged as well as challenging is what you're saying. Yeah, and that is certainly one of the most difficult things. When I, whenever I talk about this publicly, that's a question I always get. Mm. And it's clearly difficult if you're in the middle of an organization and you've got a boss who's perhaps, let's call it, top down. Yeah. Um, and it, you, you're not going to change the whole organization. But what you can do is demonstrate its success by you allowing people who work for you or your colleagues to challenge you. And I don't know if you remember, but years ago, there was a psychological tool called the Jahari window. Yeah. And the Jahari window, you know, people filled in the questionnaire and it measured the size of your arena. Ideally, the bigger the arena, the better. Because what that meant, if, if you and I were the only two people in the organization, meant that I would give feedback to you, Ian. Mm-hmm. You were receptive. In other words, and the words the Jahari window uses, you exposed yourself to this feedback. Some people take exposure as a weakness. Mm-hmm. I actually see it as a strength. So you take the feedback, but equally... I would have a small window if I didn't take the feedback you were giving me. So it's this two-way dialogue, but you do it throughout the whole organization. It's, it's actually a very simple concept. It's about constant improvement by challenging in a positive way each other. I love it. And uh, I, I, I do think this is the key for, for leaders and organizations. But there's going to be a lot of leaders listening to this podcast and listening to what you have to say and buying it into it intellectually. And they're going to say, okay, it's not the way my organization runs at the moment. It's not quite like that. What are the steps I need to take to implement a challenge culture? What, what would you suggest to them that they need to do to get, to get moving towards this challenge culture? Well, as I said earlier, they need to demonstrate success. So here's a few quick tips. So let's imagine that they are a manager who has 10 people. Mm-hmm. They, they obviously have their management team meetings. They should demonstrate how the challenge culture works. They should encourage their team to challenge them and demonstrate that they're willing to take the pushback and, and be able to think differently. Now, that's not easy. If you've not done it before, you mm-hmm. have to be very conscious in thinking about it. Now, let's say you've got a slightly bigger organization with 10 people reporting to you, perhaps another 100 underneath. 
One of the things I found very successful is what I call coffee chats at Dunkin'. Mm -hmm. I used to take junior people in the organization. I used to say to them, right, come to these meetings. We created effectively a safe environment by making sure that we didn't write down everyone's names. Uh, we let them raise what they wanted. But you have to demonstrate what, what kind of controversial things mm. you're willing to discuss. So I used to say, all right, here's some examples. Uh, there's been some rumors recently about us being bought. Let's talk mm. about that. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Uh, there's been a lot in the press about sexual misconduct. Let's talk about that at Duncan. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about does it exist? In other words, people need to know how far they can go. Mm -hmm. But but the key word I want to stress is create a safe environment. Mm -hmm. And and it was a result of those sessions, as I write in the book, we changed the family leave policy at Duncan just through the feedback of those coffee chats. So I think you keep it simple. You have a lot of interaction. And if people don't challenge you, create an environment where you say, okay, I put this idea out here. We're going to go into this new product. Go away for five minutes and come back and tell me what's wrong with the idea. You have to sometimes push people that a little bit further to get them to challenge. And, and do you find that everyone can rise to this level of challenge in an organisation, a leadership team? I mean, we've all got introverts sat around us who, yeah. who think about it deeply and maybe aren't the first to put their point across. We've got others who maybe think, oh, if I put that across, you know, you might challenge me back and I look foolish. How do you encourage those people to put their point out there and really develop this on a leadership team? Yeah, that's a great pushback uh, in its own right. And what I would say is, I think uh, there's a great phrase that you would recognize most Americans don't called horses for courses. Mm. Uh, so sometimes you have to say to people, okay, um, I'd love to have a little chat with you, get mm -hmm. them in the office, and then just do it on a one-to-one -one basis. I mean, not everyone is bold enough to challenge in a group, but it was interesting. I did it. I'm chairman of a company called ServPro, which is the market leader uh, in restoration, both domestically and commercially in America. Mm. And I did a session for their women's group, and I did three sessions. And the first one I asked for questions, got very few. The second one, I got a few more. The third one, by constant encouragement, I got a lot of pushback and a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And I found the same happened at Duncan. Every quarter, we used to do on video this Q&A. Yeah. And at the end, we couldn't cope with the questions. We had to run a, an additional <laughs> video just to answer the questions. So you're right. People don't naturally do it. Mm. You have to kind of keep encouraging it and show a lot of enthusiasm for the questions you and the challenges. And that's the key thing you get. And, and, and the one tip for leaders, it's very easy to become defensive. Mm. Even if you don't want to do something that someone puts forward, I would suggest you praise the idea, talk about how it could be done in theory, and then perhaps explain that it can't be practically implemented. Now, you've talked a lot about Duncan there, which is perhaps at that point in your career, you'd really honed this by the sound of it. And we're really starting to develop a challenge culture. If you go back a stage, in fact, go back to organizations, was there a challenge culture at Blockbuster? Was it in evidence there? Because, you know, on the surface, you can look at Blockbuster. We all know the stories, the disruption by Netflix, some of the challenges. But was there a really 
a challenge culture there. Was that in existence and was that the problem or was there something else going on there? Tell me about the time at Blockbuster. Well, you're right. The challenge culture wasn't really totally evolved in my mind. And when I got to Blockbuster, I was several levels down. There were several changes of management and I ended up in the number two position. Uh, and I think the, the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to correct some facts. Blockbuster mm-hmm. wasn't completely nailed by Netflix. In mm-hmm. fact, we were slow to the table. And, and one of the pieces of learning from, from Netflix coming on the scene, which was effectively 2008, 9, 10, mm-hmm. is a lot of internet companies were getting formed at that time. That was the internet.com bubble, as it was called. Mm. And and there was a tendency to ignore just anyone because there were so many of them. I think we made, made that mistake. And even though I wasn't in the meeting when we could have bought Netflix for 50 million, I'm mm. sure it took place. So we didn't study the competition, which was Netflix aggressively. So I think that's one thing I make a big point in the book. You've got to study all your competition extremely hard. Mm-hmm. I think... Over time, we gradually realized that Netflix was a threat and we developed it. And in 2003-04, we developed Blockbuster Online. We executed it extremely well. I won't go into details today. It's all in the book. And we took market share. I left in 2004 and we were taking market share for the next two or three years after I left from Netflix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Carl Icahn, the corporate raider, came in. (laughs) He thought all this Internet stuff was for the birds. He wanted to focus on stores. He talked about merging Blockbuster with Circuit City. And that's why we ultimately failed. So even though Netflix have done a spectacular job and still do, evolving their brand, and in many ways, they're an example of the challenge culture. They never stand still. They keep moving forward. And if you actually read books on Netflix, they have a lot of challenge. But I would argue that they do it to an excess because what I've read in the books about Netflix is that everyone challenges nonstop. Mm. That is not how I define the challenge culture. Mm -hmm. The challenge culture should not be uh, disruptive to individuals' morale. It should be positive. It should be about constant improvement, which Mm -hmm. I recognize does sound a little Japanese. No, I see that. I see that in other companies that I read about from the outside, like Amazon being a very big challenge culture um, and and Netflix too. Could Blockbuster still be going now in terms of an organisation? The brand is sort of still there, isn't it? If we think about Blockbuster, everyone knows of it of a certain age. I bought my videos and my DVDs there for a long period of my life. Yeah, no, there's no doubt it could be. There's still one store, which is in Oregon. So if anyone right. is uh, somewhere in Oregon, they should go and visit it. There's a really bad video, so don't watch it, called The Last Blockbuster, um, uh, which talks about it, but it still exists. Uh, you can still rent movies. Now, I think that the heart of your question, undoubtedly, I mean, GameStop is still around. Um, mm. If you recall, we sold videos, we rented videos on dvd Mm. we we rented uh games sold games so i think if we'd evolved there was all kinds of things that blockbuster could have done and i've often as a fun exercise said if i started blockbuster again today which by the way i couldn't because the brand is owned by dish the satellite (laughs) tv company if i did what would i do 
And I think I'd have small screening rooms. The essence of the brand would be games and video. But think how games have sustained. I mean, at the football club, we're talking about e-gaming, and I had a big meeting on it this week. So Blockbuster would have evolved. And, and what most people forget about Blockbuster, it was actually an innovation company. Mm. I mean, when I joined it in 94, they had a project with IBM called New Leaf, and you could go into a store, you could put a CD, uh, a VHS tape, or a game into a machine and get a copy. Mm-hmm. And, and it worked very well. We tested it in 10 stores. So everyone says, well, why didn't it carry on? Well, the music industry in the end opposed it because mm-hmm. they didn't like the idea of copying. Guess what happened? It created a vacuum and Napster came along and, of course, revolutionized and caused significant problems at that time for the music industry. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I think the blockbuster stories got a little bit simplified that Netflix just came along and crushed us. The answer is it, it was really down to Carl Icahn and Blockbuster should still be here today. Mm-hmm. And the number of people I talked to who would love still to go to Blockbuster and walk around on a Friday, Saturday night like they used to is fantastic. Yeah, we do hark back to those brands, don't we? Like Woolworths and think what on earth happened. Yeah. Um, so are you saying that with the right challenge culture in a business, innovation should follow creativity should follow because actually what you're doing is getting everyone's ideas on the table rather than um keeping them under under wraps and not getting them out there is is it does one follow the other yeah i i I think it does i mean every business has to evolve i mean um a a great example is i'm on the board of abercrombie and fitch as you said earlier today Mm. and there was a great article that came out yesterday about how since 2014, Abercrombie and Fitch has changed dramatically. Mm. Now that's been great leadership. It's been staying close to the customer, but it's been through challenging everything. Now the CEO, who's a a great lady called Fran Horowitz, doesn't call it the challenge culture, but essentially she's had a lot of challenge from the board. And as I say in the book, one of the reasons we were successful uh, Duncan was having a fantastic board who challenged management. It wasn't just one of these tick box boards that says, right, the CEO says we're going to do this. Great idea. So I, I truly think the challenge culture works in every walk of life. But I want to make the point again. You have to keep evolving. You have to keep anticipating the future. And there's a whole chapter on that. Mm. Um, but the most important thing is to have a positive culture where people don't feel threatened. They feel they can say anything they want. They're encouraged to speak up and you will get innovation and you will get improvement. I mean, I've got a pen right in front of me here, which you can see the listeners can't. Yeah. If, if you're in a pen company, you should be thinking constantly, how can I improve that pen? Yeah. Going to Papa John's for a minute, there's a story near the beginning of the book where you go meet a franchisee who's going to leave and you have a word with this guy and you get to the bottom of why he was going to move on and he starts to open up to you about some of the challenges that are in Papa John's and you give this as a great example of actually going and talking to people on the ground floor, getting them to open up you say the talk of that started to cascade around Papa John's and it influenced the culture of people speaking up and talking and realising they had your ear. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Tell me a bit about, about Papa John's and, and how you, you started to transform the culture there. 
Well, it happened at Papa John's and Duncan and the football club. I mean, let me start with the football club. Um, my partner and vice chairman, Kent Teague, who lives in Texas, personifies management by walking around. Uh -huh. He walks around the ground before every game for about two hours. His fans invite him for lunch, dinner, and he goes and listens, listens to them. That's the key word. Yeah. I mean, he listens and he, and he actively listens and he, he reports back to the ball. At Duncan, I did the same with the franchisees who were in a hopeless state because we had all these lawsuits between the company and the franchisees. At Papa John's, I, I went and did that. Mm. And, and I, I met, I was fortunate at Papa John's because we had a big convention, so I could do some speed dating. Mm. But mm. I used that concept I talked about earlier, Ian, mm. which was the coffee chat. I had coffee chats with franchisees regularly. And, mm -hmm. and why is that important? Well, A, franchisees are your customers, but also, also they're the ones who talk to the people who come into the stores. Mm -hmm. Through that, I learned that online pizza ordering, which as you said in the introduction, was a huge opportunity for us at Papa John's and we did really well. Mm -hmm. I learned that by listening to franchisees. It wasn't mm -hmm. me. I think there's too much me in organizations. It was listening, finding out the good ideas, finding that we needed to change the culture, certainly in Duncan, and it works. Mm. I mean, and, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the way at Leighton Orient that our fans feel they're part of it. Mm. Um, and to me, Leighton Orient was a club that nearly went into bankruptcy. We bought it from a, an owner who wasn't very good, which is an understatement. And, and we ask our fans groups every time we meet with them, well, how do you think we're running the club? Mm -hmm. fantastic uh we'll and we've got nothing to ask you to do i mean they feel they're engaged they feel they have a view they don't have to come on the board because that's the way we run our business yeah i think this isn't it interesting where maybe it's an old-fashioned view of leadership but i know some people who still have this which is as a leader, you've got to work it out for yourself. You're, the, you're paid the big bucks. You sit in a room, perhaps you involve some of your leadership team, and you work it out in a bit of a bubble. But actually, the answer lies outside of that room, usually. The answer lies outside with the customers or with the people on the ground floor at Coalface. And they've got the answers, actually. And you just need, to, as you say, to get out there and listen to them often. And that's where it comes from. Well, coming back to Abercrombie, what is really interesting there is they employ a lot of young people. And yesterday I'm, I met with the head of HR and we were talking about college recruitment and we recruit about 150 people a year. Well, they're people who come out of college. Um, they're very close to our age group because the Hollister brand is effectively a teen brand. Mm -hmm. The Abercrombie brand is in the 20s. So you're getting people who are very close to that age group and and they can feel what the customers want. And every organization at the end of the day, and not all organizations behave like this, should be giving the customers what they want. They should be exciting the customers. Absolutely. Tell me a bit more about Leighton Orient. Was it a rational thing for you or was it more of an emotional thing for you? Because, you know, reading your background, you supported them when you were growing up. You saw this opportunity. What was the, the reason for you to step in there? Because it can't be the simplest thing to work with and grow. Well, yeah, you're right. There's probably a fair amount of emotion because I've now supported the club for 62 years. Um, so you're right, there's a fair amount of emotion there, but someone had to save the club and, 
what I think is absolutely critical is to make sure you've got a plan. I mean, a, a favorite phrase, which I'm sure you've heard is to fail to plan is to plan to fail. So yep. we went in with a plan. Um, we got up every morning before we bought the club at 5.30 US time, seven days a week, literally seven days a week. It wasn't five days, seven days to go through these plans. So we tested our plans. We knew what we wanted to do. We knew we had a lot of problems. And the net result was we created a plan based on retesting that plan, making it better all the time. Um, and, and that was very effective. So there was some emotion, but what's turned out to be quite well as we've brought in new investors over time, they've made us better. They've still, they've made us think differently. Uh -huh. when, I mean, there's an article in today's Evening Standard, which I read just before speaking to you, uh -huh. and that effectively um, said that, and I, this is my quote, that we had a goal just to get back to League One. We're currently in League Two, but new investors come in and didn't have all the baggage of what we picked up. Uh -huh. They've made us think more ambitiously. So again, another example of the challenge culture, but I'm not going to deflect from your question. Yes, some of it was emotion. I was fortunate to have the money to do it, but um, I think we've tried to make it very logical. And, and based on the way I see football valuations going, mm. it's, it, it could be a good investment, but I, I write off every money I put in immediately. <laughs> so you're not going to do a Newcastle United on us in a few years, are you? Uh, at some stage, because our goal is that Leighton Orient will be going in 100 years, we will sell, but Mm -hmm. I've got no ambition to do it uh, now. And probably the best way of answering your original question on it, would I do it again? Yes. <laughs> Every time. Um, and what is the ambition now? You said you've got more investors in. You said you wanted to get to League One. I mean, is this a long-term premiership ambition or is that just pie in the sky? Is that, is that just too hard, bearing in mind the amount of money you'd have to get up there? I, I think our goal is to get to a high level League One, perhaps get in the championship, but the premiership, we'd have to think about it down the road. And it's interesting. This is consistent with the way I've always I've run companies. I mean, mm. when I was at Duncan, every couple of years, I would suddenly say to the team, okay, an announcement this morning, we've suddenly been bought by private equity. Now, what would they do? It mm. makes you think about the next few years because you all get stuck in the past. Yeah. So the processes, the plans, the way of doing business that you had in the first couple of years often have to be scrapped. And, mm. and again, I mentioned this in the book. I had a phrase which is absolutely dreadful given to me by an ex-boss when I was at Blockbuster. He said, Nigel, sometimes you have to kill your own babies. And, <laughs> and what that means is you sometimes have to tear up what you've done because the circumstances have changed mm. and come up with new ways of doing it. So... Uh, I'm sure if we get into League One, we'll look at where we are, the mm. depth of the squad, the training facilities, the stadium, all those questions, and then say, you know, where are we going to be in three or four years? So mm. uh, never say never. Just have to assess as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nigel, I want to end with one question, which I always end when I interview people, and that is. You certainly had, you know, access to a lot of great leaders you've seen, known worked with and others you probably admired from a distance who would get your vote as the best leader perhaps the most gritty leader you've seen 
in your lifetime or indeed anyone you might choose? Who would get your vote and why would they get your vote? Well, that, 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 that's a tough question. Um, I think um, Alan Shepard, who I mentioned earlier at Grand Met, was fantastic because he evolved the company from having all these different in industries to one that was focused on food and beverage. That was an outstanding achievement. He had a clear vision of where he's going. Uh, and, and I think he sought around the corners and saw where the company needed to be. I think Jurgen Klopp, who's, for those who don't know, mm. the manager of Liverpool is another one I admire. I mean, this is a guy who communicates so well with his players, clearly has been very successful at Liverpool, uh, is an engaging guy. And I'm told by people who meet him in his local pub, uh, the guy you want to meet in your local pub. So to me, that goes a long way because we should all be normal. And I think he's normal. Um, and, and he's clearly got the ability to motivate people. So I think he's another one. I think Obama is someone who, who I admired. Um, I think really had a vision of where this country should go. Um, whether they're gritty, I think anyone who's a football manager, anyone who's a prime minister, anyone who's a president, just by the sheer enormity of the jobs, has to be gritty. Yeah. But I think that's a great word because I think you sometimes have to dig yourself out of holes. And the first year I had at Duncan, because we had so many problems, I spent the whole year around my big table in my office, working with teams, looking at bankruptcies, avoiding bankruptcies of franchisees. I learned a lot about the company, but we had to be very gritty and very dogged and focused on the task. Yeah, I can believe it. So if I could sum up some of the things you pulled out there, they've got to have a really clear vision. They've got to communicate really well. Uh, they've got to be able to motivate people. And at the end of the day, they've got to be likable and, and a bit of normality about them. And I think that goes back to what we talk about a lot these days, which is being authentic. Yes, definitely. And yeah. Yeah, and being humble, poking fun at yourself. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the guys at Duncan, the senior guy who's still there, for the record, we sold the company at the end of last year, used to send my wife pictures of my shirt tails sticking out, <laughs> my socks down. I mean, all, all, all with a sense of fun. And I think that's something that's absolutely critical. Well, look, Nigel, it's been a real joy interviewing you. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, I know that our listeners will have picked up a huge amount for themselves as leaders and their businesses. So thanks very much indeed. Ian, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you.